0: Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. As we just read, we will be in everyone's favorite book this morning, 3rd John. And uh, and so a few weeks ago, I was able to preach and uh, told a story about… uh, things that uh, maybe have gotten into your house. And I asked you to think about what's the worst thing to ever get in your house. And so I told a story about a friend of mine who had a like five foot long rat snake that got into her bedroom. And, uh, and so that was fun. And I also told a story about uh, a mouse in our house, which sounds like the name of a children's book. Uh, and my mom, who said we're not going to school until my brother or I killed it with a tennis racket, which does not sound like the plot of a children's book, but uh, so b- by popular demand, I decided I will share another story involving my parents and a uh, and a mouse. And uh, and so it all starts a few months back. My uh, my brother was uh, out at uh, some family land that uh, his in-laws have, and uh, while he was out there, he found a little. Baby mouse, and so he decided to catch it, and so he did, and uh, he brought it home. I don't know why; that's irrelevant to the story. It's just a weird point. And so he uh, brought this mouse home, and he gave it to my niece to have as a pet. Again, that seems weird to me, but uh, whatever. And uh, and so she has raised this little mouse since it was a baby, and uh, and it will crawl around on her. It will come to her. It basically thinks of her as its mom, and, uh, and so uh, this has nothing to do with the particular text, but here's where it begins to connect with uh, the text. So what's uh, relevant to our particular text this morning is that a few weeks back, my parents were staying with my brother's family, staying at his house, and whenever they got there, one of the first things that my sister-in-law told my parents was, the mouse has gotten out of its cage. And so it's somewhere loose in the house. And in case you couldn't guess from the fact that my mom said, you're not going to school until you kill this mouse with a tennis racket, my mom does not like mice. And uh, so she was not happy about the idea that this uh, mouse was loose. And, uh, and so uh, uh, she was kind of concerned about that, but there's nothing she could do about it. And so uh, eventually they go to sleep uh, that night and she wakes up thinking, I felt something. And so she thinks for a second, she thinks, that's oh, probably just psychological. I know that there's a mouse loose and so uh, probably it's just psychological. And so she tries to convince herself that that's it. And so she closes her eyes again and tries to go back to sleep until she feels something actually run across her face and she knows that's not psychological that is a mouse and so she sits up in bed and she screams meanwhile my dad is uh, has been awakened from his uh, stupor and uh, he's trying to figure out what's happening my mom throws on the light and sure enough there's a, a, a mouse on the the nightstand with its little mousy mischievous grin and uh, and so my mom decided forget this i'm not sleeping in the bed and so she goes and sleeps in a uh, another room. And so that's the story. Now here's where this begins to tie into our text because there's a very strange reason that my parents were staying with my brother and sister-in-law. This wasn't just a normal friendly visit. Uh, Instead, my parents were kicked out of their house. Why were they kicked out of their house? Not because it was foreclosed or anything like that. The reason they were kicked out of uh, their own house was because they live with my sister Uh, in her house in Houston, and my sister actually has COVID. And so she tested positive a few weeks back, and so my parents are kind of homeless until the doctors have said that my sister can be around uh, other people. And uh, so my sister is basically quarantined all alone in her house without her kids, without her husband, and without my parents who uh, live with her. So my parents have been just staying all over the place. My parents stayed with my brother for a few nights. I uh, stayed with my family for a few nights. They've stayed at my aunt's for a few nights. They stayed at a hotel for a couple of nights. Uh, they're actually in Florida right now uh, at uh, some family member's uh, house. And uh, they're staying there. So basically, my parents have spent the last three weeks kind of living out of a suitcase. Actually not even living out of a suitcase because they really didn't pack for three weeks to a month of being gone. And so whenever they were staying with us, they had to go buy pants because my dad hadn't brought any pants. And uh, so uh, they're just kind of moving around like itinerant, uh, you know, missionaries or something like that, which is the context of our passage this morning. This morning we'll be talking about this concept of these itinerant missionaries, these people who go around from town to town, from church to church, from house to house, uh, as a reflection of their commitment to the gospel, and they're going with this dependence on the hospitality of others. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into uh, the passage uh, together. Just ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, an undivided and undistracted heart and, uh, and mind this morning. And now will you take that prayer that you prayed for yourself and will you reflect that out to the corporate body that the Lord would give us, eyes to see and ears to hear. And then lastly for me, that the Lord would give me faithfulness and boldness and all those good things. So Father, we love you. We're grateful that you have loved us. And as a reflection of that love, you've not only given us your Son and life in him, but you've also given us your word so that we might know your will and your nature and your character. And, uh, and so pray that you would help us this morning, that you would incline our hearts You would open our eyes, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love because you're good and you do good. And so we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at 3 John 5, that's where we'll begin. 3 John verse 5 says, beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Now typically, if you're just reading the Bible and you come across the word beloved, or if you come across uh, the pronoun you uh, in the New Testament, it's typically being used in this plural or corporate sense like we would say here in the South, y'all, or if you're from Jersey, you might say you skies or something like that. That's kind of the idea. Typically, whenever you read the word you in the New Testament, it's typically plural. That's not how it's being used here, because if you recall from last week, we talked about the fact that 3 John is a personal letter. It's not only this large letter. Yes, it is included in the Bible, and so it's for all Christians at all time, but it's not written to a group of Christians. Originally, it's written to a particular guy. It's a letter from Someone called the elder, most likely the Apostle John, written to a particular guy who's named Gaius. We talked about that last week. And so this letter is commending Gaius for his past generosity, his past hospitality, and also it's encouraging him in the future uh, toward future faithfulness, future hospitality, future uh, generosity. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of hospitality in the context of the ancient world. And bear in mind something that we talked about then, which is that there are massive cultural differences that exist between first century Greco-Roman and Jewish worlds and our modern 21st century America. In particular, there weren't McDonald's, there weren't Cracker Barrels, there weren't Starbucks along the road, there weren't rest areas with vending machines, there weren't buc with the world's largest and cleanest bathrooms, there were none of those sorts of things. So if you were traveling, you would typically have to bring enough food for your journey, or you'd have to forage along the way, or you'd have to depend to some degree on the hospitality of your countrymen. And this same uh, reality is true regarding where to sleep. There weren't chain hotels along the route. There were no motel sixes leaving the lights on for you. There were inns, but we talked before about how those were generally places of ill repute. Like in a modern analogy would be kind of a motel on the outskirts of town today that still advertises color TVs and clean sheets and warm showers as if that's like the latest in overnight luxury accommodations or something like that. So in the absence of these sorts of things, in the absence of holiday inns or embassy suites, you would typically just kind of camp out. And unfortunately, they hadn't yet invented the concept of glamping. And so whenever you would camp out, you didn't have REI to go and order the the, the finest and most fancy camping equipment. They would typically just sleep outside or they would find a cave or something like that. So they're kind of like Bear grills, right? They're just kind of living off of the land. But if you were really lucky, if you were really fortunate, you would end up staying with someone. That's where hospitality comes into play. Sometimes that might be a friend, Or a family member, you're passing through a particular area, you know someone who lives there and so you stay with them, sometimes it might be a complete stranger. We see that in the scripture a number of times where someone just shows up into a city, they're dependent upon hospitality and someone takes them in, but oftentimes it would be kind of a friend of a friend, right? So so someone would write a letter to their friend and say, hey, I know this person, I can vouch for them. Uh, So think about whenever you start a new job and you have to provide a list of references. That's kind of what 3 John is. It's kind of a a letter of uh, reference. It's kind of a letter of uh, referral. It's a letter of commendation. So John writes this letter to Gaius and it serves as a reference letter for a guy named Demetrius. Demetrius, we'll talk about him in a couple of weeks. Uh, 3 John verse 12 says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So John is basically saying, welcome, Demetrius, because he is faithful. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks, but for now, just recognize Demetrius is probably the person carrying the letter of 3 John. He's carrying it from John to Gaius, and, uh, and so for now, let's not focus though on that future and, uh, and what is going to be commended, but instead on the, the past. What John is doing here in 3 John is he is commending Gaius for the hospitality that he has already shown. You see that here in this verse, that he, that is uh, Gaius, has a good reputation in that he has historically welcomed strangers. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of hospitality in the ancient world and how it's so vastly different from the way that we use the word hospitality today. When we think of hospitality today, we might think of someone providing a few refreshments for a church hospitality uh, committee or something like that. You might think of maybe uh, hosting a bunch of women in your house for a, a tea party with finger sandwiches or, or hosting a bunch of guys in your house for nachos to watch the big game or whatever it might be. It takes a little time. It takes a little money. Uh, it takes a little effort. It takes a little bit of inconvenience, but that's about it. But that's not what hospitality signified in the ancient world. When you hosted someone in your home, you weren't merely providing a and b you were instead providing a degree of of a guarantee of sorts. You were vouching for this person. You were a guarantor of, of them. You vouched for that person in the community and thus this person was welcomed. This person was afforded certain legal and social protections and their status changes in that community from a stranger, from a foreigner, from an outsider in that community to one who is a welcomed guest. To one who was an honored guest. In fact, the original literal meaning of the Greek word, which is often translated as hospitality uh, in the New Testament, is philoxenos. It's a fun word to say. Try it, philoxenos. Philoxenos in Greek originally meant love for stranger. That's what the word originally meant. Although it was eventually used just for hospitality in general, not necessarily of a stranger, but just love for anyone that's not in your own household, whether they are a stranger. Or not. But the idea of showing love to a stranger in particular demonstrates why you would want a letter of reference. If a stranger shows up at your house, it's going to be helpful in terms of you deciding whether or not you're going to allow that person to come in if you have a letter from someone that you do trust saying, this person is trustworthy, this person is faithful, I commend them to you. So Gaius has never met Demetrius. He doesn't know anything about him. So John writes this letter to not only encourage Gaius, but also to commend Demetrius as being faithful. Now, why is it so important that Gaius knows that Demetrius is faithful? Bear in mind, again, a few weeks back, we saw that John warns against welcoming unfaithful teachers. 2 John 10-11, through if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. So I want you to feel the tension between this text in 2 John and the text that we're reading today in 3 John. In 2 John, the author says not to welcome certain persons, and then in 3 John, the author says to welcome certain other persons. So how do we know which is which? How do we know which command is actually applicable for our unique circumstance? how do we know which command to follow and when? Second John says, don't allow this person in your house. Third John tells us, yes, you should allow this person into your house. And so how do you know which is which? What all depends on if that person is, as my daughter would say, a good guy or a bad guy. We're watching a lot of Disney movies lately, and uh, and so she always wants to know, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Which is really hard whenever it's like a character that just is on the screen for one shot, and you're like, I don't know good or bad, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. So, to put this in her vernacular, what John is basically saying here is to welcome the good guys, but to not welcome the bad guys. But how do you know the difference? Well, in the context of, uh, of all three of John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, there are three tests in particular that he gives to distinguish good guys from bad guys. The first test is a theological test. In other words, do these people believe the right things about Christ? Do these people believe the right things about God? So that's the first test. There is a theological element. The second test is a moral element. Do they progressively uh, hate sin? Do they progressively grow in pursuit of holiness? That's the second test. The third test is a social test. Do they sacrificially and selflessly love others, especially other Christians. But in the particular context of 2nd and 3rd John, the particular test that he's given here is not merely the the moral and the social test, but instead he's concentrating on the theological or doctrinal test. In other words, those who are orthodox, those who have the right gospel, those who serve the right God, those who are orthodox are good, and they are to be welcomed, they're to be supported, they're to be hosted… Whereas those who are not orthodox, those who are heretical, those who are heterodox, those who pervert or distort the gospel are bad and are not to be supported. They're not to be welcomed. Let's keep going. We still have three verses left. Third John 5, again, beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So in the previous passage, we saw that Gaius has historically been generous. He's historically been hospitable to some brothers, some strangers, probably itinerant missionaries, preachers, teachers, who had kind of passed through uh, the area where Gaius was. And then they had uh, gone on to another city, another church. And while they're there in this other city, maybe it was uh, their home church or whatever it might be, they're in this other church, and while they're there, They testify, they give testimony to Gaius' hospitality. It's what it says here at the beginning of the passage, who testified to your love before the church. I love this idea of testifying, not only of God's grace, yes and amen, but testifying of God's grace through a particular other people, through the virtues of others, the love of others. I think that's a lost practice. It seems like we, as a culture in general, are pretty good at singing our own praise, We're pretty good about gossiping about others, about slandering others, but I don't think we're generally all that great when it comes to testifying to the virtues of others. And that's what these itinerant missionaries are doing. They come back to their city and they say, hey, this Gaius guy, he's faithful. He helped us. He was hospitable toward us. He cared for us. He served us. He supported us. He welcomed us. They're testifying about Gaius's hospitality. So how often do you do that? How often do we do that? How often do you talk about others in a way that is just completely positive? Not at all negative. Where there's no self-interest. Where there's no quid pro quo. You flatter me and I'll flatter you. You scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. For example, we give Jared a hard time because he looks like a living Ken doll. He looks like the son of the Steve Irwin or something like that. And his son We've talked about him before. He's a mega baby, two months younger than my boy, who's one year old. And uh, already, Harvey uh, weighs 50% more than my son. So we give Jared a hard time for all of these facts. But at the same time, I want you to know he's one of the most godly and disciplined men that I know. He devotes himself to prayer and studies and walks in a whole lot of humility. Or Dave and Vicki Young. Right? Many of you don't know this, but they sacrifice one day every single week, uh, every single Tuesday they're up at the church, they're laboring for free to help with administrative tasks. They get nothing out of that. That's a huge sacrifice. Do you know what it's like to try to get work done around Tim, right? That's a very big sacrifice. That's why we call him the tempest, right? He is just uh, always up in uh, people's business and yet David and Vicky are up here. Very few of you know how necessary that couple is for the functioning of our little church. And we could go on and on with other deacons, other elders, other staff members, other uh, group uh, leaders, other members of the church who have proven themselves faithful in countless ways. So the main point of this text isn't that we should testify to the virtue of others, but I think that's a little secondary point worth digressing for a second and mentioning. So is this a discipline that you regularly cultivate? And if not, I would encourage you in that to find someone who has been faithful and to testify of their faithfulness before others. So do you testify to the faithfulness of others as an expression of encouragement and appreciation? What we see here uh, in this is a little fulfillment of Christ's promise or his warning in Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke 12, two through three. Jesus says nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be revealed known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Here's the point. Gaius didn't virtue signal. He didn't humble brag about how hashtag blessed he was to host these strangers on social media. He didn't tweet his righteousness before others. He simply showed hospitality. He simply was faithful to some strangers and as a result, his generosity was testified to before John's church. But here's what I what, want what you to think about is so crazy about this passage. Not only was Gaius' hospitality commended in John's first century church, but also every local church and every individual Christian who has ever read this letter. Think about that for a second. I've never met Gaius. You've never met Gaius. He lived thousands of years ago. Thousands of miles away, and yet we're talking about this man, Gaius, today. Why is that? Because he was faithful. He was faithful to love and serve others. Now, notice what's next. John writes, "You will do well to send them on the on their way." Here we see this, this kind of broadening of the text in two ways. First, there is this emphasis as the text is going to move from the past. You have historically been faithful to the future. So now be faithful as well. As you have been faithful in regards to hospitality in the past, so also in the future commit yourself to the work of hospitality. Second, the text is also going to broaden from these brothers who had already come, the ones, the itinerant missionaries who had already passed through, to any others like them who might come in the future. In other words, this is not just a letter that's unique to the circumstances of Gaius. Instead, this is a principle commending generosity and hospitality in general. In other words, this is not only for this one first century man, but rather for the universal church, that you and I might learn from this example. John is writing this to Gaius, but he's also writing this for the church universal throughout all times and all places so that we too might emulate this example of hospitality and heed this apostolic command to love and serve others. Now look at that last phrase. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. What does that phrase mean? In a manner worthy of God. That's not John's way of supporting the prosperity gospel. I've heard it used in that way before. I heard a quote-unquote pastor one time say that he needed a new jet. He already had a jet, but he needed a newer jet, and he needed a bigger jet. And here's his reasoning. Because… God would only fly in the best jets. And I thought, I don't think God needs a jet. I don't think God needs to fly at all. He's omnipresent and he's omnipotent. But that is uh, not at all what uh, John's point is here. By worthy of God, John doesn't mean that these missionaries, these preachers, these, uh, these teachers should drive the best cars should wear the finest clothes, should live in the biggest houses, all of these things that reflect the riches of our father or something like that. That's not what John means here by manner worthy of God. John is instead simply commending hospitality and generosity that is worthy of God's approval. That's the idea there. Worthy of God is worthy of God's approval. That's the idea that he's getting at. That's the what of the text. Let's now begin to look at the why. Look at verse 7, and we'll see the why. Third John 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So why should you help? Why should you be hospitable? Why should you welcome and support and serve and love these itinerant missionaries? Well, we see two reasons here in this particular verse. We'll see a third reason in our next verse, and we'll actually see a final reason in our passage uh, next week, but let's look at the first two reasons that we see in this verse. the first reason, reason number one, because they have gone out for the sake of the name. Now what name is that? What's well, the name of Jesus? Within the early church, it was commonplace to simply speak of the phrase "the name," and by that to mean the name of Jesus. Look at Acts 5:40 40 through41. This is a good example of this. And when they, that's the, the, the council of the Jews, had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, that's the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for, look at that phrase there, the name. In other words, the name of Jesus is not just any other name, like Frank or Bill or Gary or something like that, but it's the name If you've never done this before, I would encourage you to to do so, to just open your ESV app on your phone or your iPad or whatever it might be and just look up all of the uses of the phrase, the name, uh, in the New Testament and see how often the name of Jesus is referenced. In Acts, people are baptized, not just into Jesus, but into the name of Jesus, Romans says everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. In 1 Corinthians, the church gathers in the name of Jesus. In Ephesians, we are to give thanks in everything in the name of Jesus. Philippians says that Jesus is the name above every name. In Colossians, we are to do all things in the name of Jesus. And on and on and on we could go. What's happening here is that the word name is being used to refer to the person. To say that these men had gone out in the name of Jesus in 3 John is to say that they went out for Jesus Himself. That's the idea here. So these people had been evangelists. They'd been missionaries. They'd been preachers. They'd been preachers for the sake of Jesus. In other words, they had the right motivation and the right goal. These people that John is commending had gone out for the reason of spreading the gospel. In other words, they had gone out for a very different reason than the people that had gone out in 1 John. If you remember all the way back in 1 John chapter 2, I think it's around verse 19 or so, we saw that some people had gone out And they had gone out not in the name of Jesus, but instead they had gone out to uh, promote a false gospel, a distorted gospel, whereas these people had gone out for the true gospel of the true God. So that's the reason number one, the first reason to support and welcome uh, these uh, men is because they had gone out for the sake of the name. Reason number two, he says that they had accepted nothing from the Gentiles. Now this could be a little bit confusing. The word translated as Gentiles here is ethnicos, ethnicos, from which we get the word ethnicity. So you might think that John is meaning this as a racial marker in some sense. Gentiles as opposed to Jews. But that's actually not the way that it's being used here in 3 John, especially in the New Testament. We see the sharpening of our understanding of what distinguishes Jew from Gentile. It isn't ethnicity, it's instead election. It isn't isn't genetics, it's grace. It isn't circumcision, it isn't race, it isn't a matter of biology or blood. It isn't food laws, it isn't the Sabbath, it's faith in Christ. So believers who are ethnically Gentile are considered throughout the New Testament to be sons of Abraham. Whereas ethnic Jews, those who are Jews by birth, are considered Gentiles if they reject Christ. So when John speaks here of Gentiles, he doesn't mean non Jews, he means non Christians. Look at the way other translations take this phrase. The Holman Christian Standard Bible uh, says, accepting nothing from pagans. They don't even use the word Gentiles there, instead, so they use pagans, because that's the idea. In the NIV, it says something similar, receiving no help from the pagans. The uh, Revised Standard Version, says uh, that they have accepted nothing from the heathen. The new Revised Standard Version says accepting no support from non-believers. So that's the idea there. In other words, John is not referring to this group on the basis of race, but instead on the basis of religion. Our culture has dozens upon dozens of ways of dividing people. Race, Gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, socioeconomic class, nationality, ethnicity, etc. But the New Testament has one and only one way of really distinguishing mankind. Not ethnic Jew and Gentile, not black and white, not slave and free, not rich and poor, not bourgeoisie and proletariat, not the oppressed versus the oppressor, but rather those in Christ, that is the church and those who are not in Christ, that is unbelievers or pagans or non-Christians. So these brothers had gone out for the sake of the name and they hadn't accepted any gifts, any support, any help from the Gentiles, from the pagans, from the unbelievers, why not? Well, obviously the reason is so as to not distort the message by in any way making their motives seem duplicitous. In other words, they didn't wanna seem like that prosperity gospel who's asking for a new jet. These guys who are always asking to plant a little seed in their ministry, four easy payments of 1999, so you can reap a, a you know, harvest of material blessings. They didn't want to seem like they're just in it for the money, when in reality, their motivation was the glory of God and the eternal life of those unbelievers. So they made a conscious decision that they would not accept support from unbelievers, so that there would be no cause for stumbling or misunderstanding. As a reminder, the gospel is a message of what God has done for you. The gospel is a message for, of what God has given to you, not what you do for him or not what you'd give to him. So these brothers didn't wanna rob themselves of opportunities to proclaim the message of free grace by demanding or even accepting anything from those unbelievers to whom they were ministering. But if they weren't willing to accept help from unbelievers, how would they receive support? Because it has to come from somewhere That's where the church comes in. Let's keep going. Look at uh, verse eight. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Here we see the final reason to support these brothers, at least the final reason in this uh, passage. And that reason is, the third reason, is that Gaius and indeed all Christians should feel a responsibility to provide hospitality and generosity in order that we might be fellow workers for the truth. Now, this corresponds to something that we looked at a few weeks back. Look again at 2 John 10 and 11. Notice the the logic here. 2 John 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Why? Because for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Notice, hosting a bad guy, in other words, a false teacher or a heretic implies sharing in bad work. That's what John has said there in 2 John. Hosting a bad guy implies sharing in a bad work. So it stands to reason, and indeed he explicitly says so here in 3 John, that supporting a good guy, in other words a faithful teacher, a faithful preacher, a faithful missionary, means sharing in a good work. By helping those who work for the truth, you therefore share in some degree in Their work. In other words, this seemingly mundane act of obedience of just welcoming this stranger into your house could have powerful and profound implications. Consider the fact that this is the way the gospel spread throughout the ancient world. In the early church, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have radio. They didn't have books that they were circulating. There wasn't Amazon that you could just simply log on and order the latest book from the latest apostle or something like that. The gospel is spreading by people taking it by literally going from door to door. Jesus himself had no home. He was supported by the hospitality and generosity of others. When Jesus sends out the apostles, he does so assuming that they will be shown hospitality in the form of a place to stay, and food to eat, and water to drink. When Paul is on his missionary journey, you'll notice throughout the book of Acts and throughout his uh, his epistles, you'll notice that he would often stay with faithful brothers and sisters who would help support his work in that area. What's interesting: we don't know the names. We don't know the names of the stories of most of these brothers and sisters, and yet because of their faithfulness in this little area lives are changed. As a result of this seemingly mundane act of opening their homes, the gospel spreads throughout the empire and lives are saved. In other words, you don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor. You just have to be faithful with the opportunities you're given to show hospitality and generosity, opportunities to open your life and your home to share with and support others. So here we begin to see where there's a bit of application, even though our context is quite different in the first century, some application for today. I don't think that applying this text necessarily means that if Zach shows up at your house tonight and says, hey, I'm crashing at your house tonight, that you have to let him in, right? Although you probably should talk to him because Katie's kicked him out of the house. But that's probably not the application that I would draw from this text. Instead, what are the applications? I want to suggest just a few. The first one is I want us to be hospitable. I want there to be a culture within uh, Parkway of hospitality, of welcoming others, of engaging others, of serving others, of loving others. Again, the, the circumstances are very unique and very different from our world versus the ancient world, and yet this is still a binding command upon the people of God that we be hospitable. Let me give you a few verses to prove that. Hebrews 13, 1 through 2, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I don't know what entertaining angels unaware means, but it sounds pretty cool, right? 1 Peter 4, 8 through 9, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Don't just do it, but do it without grumbling, and do it in uh, a posture of seeking it out. Not merely allowing it passively to come to you, but actually seeking out opportunities to be hospitable. God expects his children to show hospitality, which also means that we need to embrace some degree of risk and inconvenience. Hospitality doesn't always look like you sending out an RSVP for a pre-planned dinner. Sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's burdensome, but that's actually where the grace is as you open your door and your heart to others. I'm not saying you have to go and find some random stranger on the street and invite them into your house, although some of you may do, and that's perfectly fine. I think that's a good thing, but why don't you just start by having a member of the church over that you don't know, having them over for dinner, Having them over to hear their story. Or what about a coworker or one of your neighbors as an opportunity for you to share the gospel? Not only does that serve others, but it also serves you by helping to mortify your flesh. All of us, every single one of us, our flesh inclines toward comfort and convenience. And hospitality is a way to mortify that, to put that to debt, to crush that. So that's the first application, that you would seek out ways to be hospitable. Second, I want to remind you of your responsibility to share in the work of ministry by supporting the work of ministry, including giving to churches and missionaries and so forth. I realize this sounds self-seeking, all right? I'm not independently wealthy, so I'm supported by the church, but at the same time, I'm unfaithful if I don't say what is an actual implication of this text, because this is so prevalent in Scripture, I'm going to give you four passages that make this point. Galatians 6.6, 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11, who serves as a soldier as a, at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it oxen? Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 14, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. If you're an unbeliever here, if you're a visitor here, this is not for you. All right, we don't want your money. In fact, I'd love to take you out and buy you lunch. But for the church, for those who love and trust Jesus, this is a binding command upon all of us that we would support the work of ministry, including giving to support pastors and missionaries and churches and so forth. So that's the second application, support those who labor for the gospel. Last application to mention. This is so crucial, so bear with me. Here it is. I think in the last application of this passage is that we would remember and rest in the reality of the gospel. Again, the gospel is not ultimately about what you do for God. In fact, it's not at all about what you do for God or what you do for others, but instead what God has done for you. So, your hope is ultimately not found in your hospitality Your sacrifice, your generosity, but instead in his. This could not be more important. If you make your faith, if you make your service, if you make your works, if you make your generosity, if you make your hospitality into the sum of what you do or don't do for God, your only options are pride or shame. That's all that's gonna be left. If your hope is built on what you do for God, you will only result in feeling shame when you don't accomplish it or feeling pride when you do accomplish it. But if you will instead not base your hope in what you do or don't do for God, but instead what God has already done for you, the result is not shame and it's not pride, but instead it's joy and it's hope and it's peace. So I wanna close with this reminder from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says this. This is a command for us. Remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers, there's that word again, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were aliens, you were strangers, you were foreigners, you were outsiders, you were cut off, you were destitute, you were without help or hope. But keep reading. Next verse, Ephesians 2.13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's keep going. Skip forward a few verses. Ephesians 2.19. So then, because of this, because you were brought near by the blood of Christ, so then you are no longer strangers. You are no longer aliens. You are no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The gospel isn't ultimately about your hospitality or your generosity or your faithfulness or your love or your sacrifice, but God's. God welcomed you and me who were strangers so that we are no longer strangers. But here's the, uh, the incredible reality here is not merely are we not strangers. We were brought from being strangers into relationship with him, and, but we're not merely welcome guests. We are instead members of his very household. We are sons and daughters of a good father who gives good gifts. So may we go and do likewise. Well, may we imitate our father by welcoming and loving, and supporting others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for the reality of the gospel that though we were strangers, though we were cut off, though we were foreigners, though we had no help, though we were exposed to the elemental uh, principles of this world, though we were... Under your wrath, though we were cut off, though we were destitute, but you have shown mercy to us. You have been hospitable, that we're no longer strangers. We're not merely welcome guests, but we're your children. And so we're grateful. I pray that you would allow that reality to stir in our hearts, a desire for us to go and do likewise, to love and welcome and serve others, even others who are not like us, not of our same race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status or whatever it might be, Lord, that we might be those who would love and serve others because You have loved and served us. So we pray these things with hope and expectation that You will work in our hearts, not leading us to pride or shame, but instead to rest in your goodness and love. And so we pray it in Christ's name, amen.